This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning. Well, if you're still trying to work out your New Year's resolutions, perhaps this year you're hoping to be happy. But what is happiness? How do we achieve it? And is the expectation that we're supposed to be happy making us unhappy? In studio, Pete Lunn is a behavioural economist at the ESRI. Dr. Mary Murray is a clinical psychologist. And Porrick O'Moran is a mindfulness teacher and columnist at the Irish Times. Pete Lunn, I'll start with you. Is the happiness of the people a private matter for them or a public matter? Well, it's, I think, fairly obviously, to be honest, both. I mean, how much would we like a government that didn't care about our well-being? What's changed, of course, in recent times is that scientists have found better ways to measure well-being. And there's now a whole range of research papers and policy wonks get in on this as well, who are looking at well-being indicators of different sorts and are looking at happiness measures that we can measure in surveys and through other methods as well. And we understand more now about the causes of well-being, what well-being is related to. It's become a more solid scientific concept. And in a way, that means government, like any other piece of evidence that comes before government, has to pay attention to it. Now, of course, it's not the be-all and the end-all. You can measure it reasonably well, but not brilliantly. And of course, this is only one indicator we care about, about the health of our society. But it would be a pretty irresponsible government that ignored this, actually. Right. But, you know, surely it's their function to make sure that we've houses and food security and jobs and things like that. But the concept of the greatest happiness of the people, I know it goes back a long way, the 17th century and Jeremy Bentham and philosophers like John Stuart Mill. Is it the function of the government to make us happy on top of everything? Well, you've just said it's the function of government to provide all these things, but the government has to prioritise those. I mean, everything is competing for resources. It's got to decide where those resources go. So just to give you a simple example, I mean, one of the things that the well-being research has told us in recent years is how closely related well-being and mental health are. That, in fact, people who have low well-being are at risk of suffering poor mental health. And we know that depression is, it has a major impact on people's well-being. So one of the things that the new science of well-being has actually done is it's made governments look a little more closely at the causes of mental health problems, take them more seriously. Whereas for many, many decades, they weren't taken as seriously as physical health problems. But actually, mental health is a really important issue. And the well-being science has helped governments to understand that, to see it, to assess some of the causes of it and to address some of them. And that's a good thing. So, Mary Murray, what is happiness? Well, I would concur with a lot of that, but I'm not sure that happiness is what has been sought there. I think, you know, capacity to cope is what what you're talking about there. Our resilience, are all of the conditions being provided that protect people from mental ill health, because any one of us can become mentally unhealthy, I think, at any time. And those of us who think we can't are perhaps uh, deluding ourselves in some way. But, I mean, if you say, well, what is happiness? I think it's very elusive. I always think it's that thing that, you know, they say, don't cut the throat of the nightingale to find out why it sings so sweetly. Don't try and define it because it is something that is different for every single person. For a lot of people listening now as we come into the new year, they are going to look back, perhaps, at the previous year. And if some tragedy or befell them, they're going to think, my goodness, I didn't know this time last year 
how happy I was. So I think one, for me, one of the real definitions of happiness is often what we look back on and reflect on. And we recognise it, sadly and tragically, often when we've lost it. So all those kind of cliches like your health is your wealth. If you've lost your health, you know how happy you were when you had it. Um, So I think it defines itself often by loss, often in reflection, often in simplicity. And of course, the marketing that has grown up and the products and the peddling of happiness, sometimes it's pleasure, sometimes it's momentary sense of achievement or whatever. But real core happiness, I don't think it's any of those things. And I think that's where we're really in trouble because we now have people feeling that they ought to. I think you mentioned that, you know, it's been sold to us as it's a right. It's almost like an obligation. You ought to be happy. It's a measure of our psychological stability if we're feeling unhappy. And of course, the human condition is such that, of course, happiness isn't. It's part of it, but it's not all of it. And I think that, you know, even psychology, psychotherapy and even Freud said that what he would do was turn normal human misery into basically uh, managing. So your utter misery into normal human unhappiness. So I think the key is resilience. So, Pora Gamoran, I think maybe what people are feeling these days is that maybe when our parents, you know, were growing up, you know, there was poverty. So, you know, having enough to eat, being warm, these were the things that provided satisfaction. But that's not enough anymore. You know, unless you're living a pleasurable life, there's something wrong with you. And that puts terrible pressure on people. I think it puts huge pressure on people because the thing is, uh, I would say the thing is is to hope to be happy enough of the time you're not going to be happy all of the time because everything changes anyway. And this a demand then that if happiness equals pleasure, which it doesn't really, and you've got to have this pleasurable feeling all of the time, it ain't going to work, you know, because you're not going to feel that way all of the time. But it does put a pressure on people. What can I do? What can I do? So let's say you're sitting there staring into the teeth of January, which, let's face it, is not the most fun month of the year. You know, you don't actually have to feel bubbling over with happiness because it's January, you know. Um, to me, happiness is if enough of the the things that give meaning to my life, if enough of them are there at the time, there's a fundamental feeling of happiness or well-being or whatever the word would be, even though I might actually be quite fed up with today, you know, it's a, it's a more of an underlying kind of thing. But I think the demand that we be happy all the time, and it is a kind of a demand, and we are told that if you buy this or that, you will be happy all the time. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, actually. What's the relationship between happiness and um, having a meaningful life? Uh, these are all indefinable terms, of course, but to me, something that brings meaning to your life is something that you would get up for in the morning, even if you didn't have to. Something like that. And that's not a perfect definition either, but anyway, it's as close as I can get. So having the things that bring meaning has some level of happiness to it. Let us suppose somebody is caring for somebody because they care about them and that brings meaning to their life. Uh, there might also be a lot of, of anxiety and worry and so on and tiredness and all sorts of things there as well. But there's a little um, sort of substratum of happiness or of well-being or of meaning there. Because you're meaning. doing the right thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's a tricky one. So happiness doesn't necessarily always feel great. Um, Pete Lon, I mean, I take the point about, well, it is in the uh, the interest of good government, you know, to care about the well-being of people. But I suppose it's the corporatization of happiness that people are worried about, that 
measuring what makes people happy and manipulating them into being happy um, is now a tool of corporations. To some extent, I agree with that. I mean, it's primarily a tool of science. I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, I totally agree with what Porrick's just said about meaning and the way scientists actually measure happiness is twofold. One is through a life satisfaction measure, which is basically asking them to take a pace backwards and say, overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? And there, if they're caring for somebody else, those kind of things kick in. I mean, the idea is, well, look, I may not be experiencing pleasure every minute of the day, but my life has meaning. So when I take a pace back, I'm satisfied with it. The other way of doing it is what's called the day reconstruction measure, where you actually take people through their pre previous day and you remind them of all their episodes and then you elicit from them what all their moods were. Now it actually turns out that the overall life satisfaction measure is correlated with the day reconstruction measure but not that strongly. There's a difference between the two and it's exactly the two different forms of happiness that Porrick's just mentioned. You know, One being this idea of how happy am I overall when I really sit back and think about it and evaluate my life and its meaning and so on and the other is how much am I in a good mood on a day-to-day basis and the two are related, quite strongly related but not so strongly. They are different. Now what's really coming up for me here in, in both of what I've heard is that there's an idea here that there's something about popular culture that is getting this wrong. Right. And <clears throat> I think that, that there's some truth in that, but I also think we need to be really careful. So one of the standard findings in this area, actually, is there's a systematic shape to life satisfaction. People around their 20s are quite happy. People in their 60s and 70s, 70s are the happiest people in our society. It's all, of course, on average. I mean, people differ hugely. And actually, there's a strong genetic component to this. There are some people who are just temperamentally happy people and some people who are temperamentally unhappy people. But there is a shape across our lives. And it reaches its dip as someone in their mid-40s, I'm afraid to say, in your mid-40s. That's right? me. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and one of the primary theories for this, and this is very interesting in the light of what um, Marie was saying, and I'm um, sorry, Marie was saying... What's interesting about this is it seems to be about goals, that what, what happens early in life is people are happy because they actually have unrealistic ideas of what life is going to give them and going to bring them. And as they go through middle age, they realise they're simply not going to get anywhere near achieving the things that they thought they were going to do. And then there comes a point where they reevaluate and they seek deeper meanings in their lives and they start to realise what they're capable of and how they can really contribute to the society around them. They set more realistic goals. And by the time they're 60 and 70, and I stress this is on average, that group is then the happiest group in our society. So I think there's a lot of truth. And I think the question you then have to ask yourself is, right, given we know that, is it the case that the marketing industry is being irresponsible in the way it's trying to sell a lifestyle to younger people? Or is it just that as we get older and we get a bit wiser and see the silliness of what they're doing and what they're peddling, that it's no change in society, it's actually a change in us? And I worry which it is. I mean, I wonder if this has been the problem for the last 50 years and it's just as we get older, we notice it and realise we're being sold a pup. Yeah, Mary, I never drove through Paris in a sports car with wind in my hair. Is that what it's about? It's expensive. Expectation management. I think to a certain extent it is. I'd, I'd agree with, with Pete, you know, but if the expectations, you know, if we look at what we call these cultural discourses and what's out there as the ideas in society and the dominant one amongst the dominant ones is happiness. Buy this because you're worth it, you know, because you put value on yourself. If we keep sending a message that is primarily consumerist, then it is not surprising, given that that brings short-term high, that, uh, you know, there follows the sequential low. I sometimes wonder, though, Porik, when people say things like, oh, money can't buy you happiness, 
you know, that's that's an yeah. easy thing to tell the, the people, keep them down. Ah, you know, you could have more money and you could have more stuff, but would it really make you happy? Well, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe I mean, would. I know, and, and Peter would know more about this than me from his work, but uh, so far as I know, all of the research suggested when your basic needs are met, as defined by your culture and society, extra income doesn't bring about a significant improvement in happiness. Now, all of us would be willing to take a chance on that, but it, it doesn't. And you know, there's all this, this uh, research about people who win the lottery and a year later, they're more or less as happy as they were when they won it. Right. On the day, or just before they won it, I yeah, should say. Yeah. <laughs> Again, most of us would be quite happy to take that chance because it's counterintuitive. But it's only counterintuitive because we've been told stuff makes you happy. So no, it isn't really the case that lower levels of income, if basic needs are met, tend to be associated, so far as I know, with greater happiness. In fact, I saw something yesterday based on a new British study suggesting that lower levels of education also are are linked with greater happiness. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Now, you were writing recently in the Irish Times that, you know, maybe we need to accept that it's okay to be unhappy. It was strangely comforting to read that and your argument. Tell me a bit more about that. got set off on this idea by an article by Therese Brady, who used to head the Department of Psychology, if I'm right, in UCD, and who was involved with the hospice movement as well. And she um, gave a, a paper around 1990 in which she kind of talked about the tyranny of happiness and the whole positive thinking thing and all of that, and sort of saying that, look, people who are, who are really unhappy because of things that are happening to them, they feel even worse when they read all of this about you can be happy in five minutes. And she even talked about people, because she was linked with the hospice movement, maybe who are uh, dying, and they're under this pressure, you know, you really ought to die happily. Yeah. And it's like, they would like say, well, hold on a second, you know, maybe I'd like to not do that. And it, it, there's a tyranny about the you must be happy. There's thing. a great book by Barbara Ehrenrich, the American woman journalist, yeah. called Smile or Die. Yeah. Yes. And because yes. she had cancer. Yeah. And what she found was this overwhelming, think positive, as yeah. if somehow thinking positive would save <clears throat> her life. Yeah. Yes. And uh, it was yeah. a huge burden to her. And that research I mentioned, by the way, the British research suggests that there is no link between your levels of happiness and your mortality. So whether you're happy or unhappy doesn't affect when you're going to die. Pete, so. on that question of money, can money buy you happiness? No. Uh, the science <laughs> is pretty clear about this. Money cannot buy you happiness, but poverty sure as hell can buy you unhappiness. I want to add a wrinkle, because Park is absolutely right about that, but there is something subtle about this, I think. It isn't just about whether your basic needs are met. That's really important. You're right. If your basic needs are not met, it makes you more unhappy. No question about it. Uh, And that effect is really, really big. So if we worry about things like economic growth and the economy, we damn well should because when people are unhappy, it's often because they are poor and particularly because they're unemployed and they can't participate within society. And one of the things the happiness science has shown us is the importance of those things. So that's absolutely correct. Being poor can buy you unhappiness. Money can't necessarily buy you happiness. But there's an important thing here, which is how people do relative to the others around them matters too. So... It's not just a question of what you can do with your money. It's a question of how much you have relative to those around you. And that turns out to be as important as the amount of income that you have, your relative income compared to others. Now, you might think that that's just a sort of social status thing. And to some extent, it probably is. To some extent, it's just, do I have equivalent social status to people around me? Or does it make me feel bad that there are other people who are being more successful than I am? And social status, we know from a lot of psychological studies, is important. But the other thing that seems to be important there is an idea of fairness. That quite often those inequalities within society are associated with feelings of unfairness and nobody likes to feel 
that they're being made a mug of or that the rest of society is getting one over them and that somehow that, that's an unfair thing. So fairness plays in a lot and so does social status. Although the primary thing here, as you absolutely correctly say, is that if your basic needs aren't met and you are poor or particularly unemployed, so you're not participating in society, that has a really big effect on your well-being. And I think, um, Mary, what Peter's tapping into there is this concept of that you've a right to be happy, you're supposed to be happy and you see other people around you who at least appear superficially to be happy. It's the Facebook syndrome, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it is. I agree with, with what he's saying there. I mean, it's so much you rating yourself in terms of others. And if you feel that you have been deprived of what others have been given, then, you know, that's a huge problem and it does link in. That's the key. The injustice, you know, I, I mean, those who are so angry that during the Celtic years, they never benefited. And then when those years ended, that they were the ones who paid. Or those who work terribly hard for little and find that others appear to do nothing for less. But are the they right? Are they right to feel angry? Well, of course they are, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know... Yes, you have a right to feel angry. You have a right. Injustice is one of those really powerful emotions. I mean, it starts with children. You know, the cry of children. Yes. That's not fair. So it's a deep, primitive and very powerful emotion. And I couldn't agree more with Pete that if, you know, unless we have an economy that's organised in a way that appears to value and treat equally more or less everyone and allow those who would like the dignity of work and the opportunity to to have those, they're going to feel pretty bad about themselves. So it seems to me that comes back into expectation and perhaps political change that if you want to be happy, maybe you need to accept that your goals are unrealistic and not having loads of money, you know, isn't the be all and end all of life. And yet, politically, that would mean you have a docile population who are perhaps willing to expect less than they're entitled to. I know. <laughs> no, no, no. Am I it's, going too no, far there? No, no. Well, you know, th- this is where people would say, no, you know, don't peddle this idea yeah. um, in some way, you know, because it, this isn't about placating the masses. This is just about a bit of realistic understanding of what the issue is. But what I'm really interested in is the psychological research which shows optimism, altruism, gratitude, forgiveness and fulfilment, that they actually keep emerging as the factors that really make us happy. When we give to others, we really feel good about ourselves. That altruism, yeah, when making, we're making other people happy makes you happy. Yeah. Porik, yeah. Um, I'm going to be talking to Father Sean McDonough in a minute to get okay. his take on it. But there's one point I want to put to you. And it's, again, trading off that thing about not expecting too much in life and not expecting, you know, to be happy all of the time. But then maybe the downside of that is selling yourself short. Now, you're a mindfulness teacher, and I have on occasion bitterly observed that really mindfulness is about distracting you from the fact that you're unhappy. I think that mindfulness, sometimes when people start doing mindfulness, they use it as a distraction. But uh, sometimes you become more aware of your unhappiness or of your anxiety or your fears. There's that side of it as well. But people start off by using it as a distraction. If they continue it, then, then become also aware of unhappiness because it's all part of what's going on. But it has often sold us something that will bring you 
continuous happiness. So it's, to that extent, it can be part of that industry. So it's not a grand conspiracy by the Bilderberg Group to uh, persuade the people to accept less than they're entitled to. Well, no. We get them all on mindfulness. <laughs> they won't think about changing the world. Oh, Paul, I, think, I, think that, I think it's funny. You see mindfulness being adopted by billionaires and people like that. And of course, as we have just discovered from our discussion, billionaires are not, in fact, much happier than the rest of us, which is a great comfort to the rest of us, actually. But I, I sometimes look at that side of it and, and it's just like, wow, what's going on here? It's really strange. Well, you know? I took one of your courses and you did introduce it by saying, you know, mindfulness doesn't make you a good person. Bad people can do mindfulness. <laughs> I thought it was a great observation. Look, I have to take a quick break now. And when I come back, I'll be talking to Father Sean McDonough. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Welcome back to Talking Point. Happy New Year to you. And we're talking about how to be happy this year. In studio with me is Pete Lund, behavioural economist with ESRI. Porrick Moran is a columnist with the Irish Times and mindfulness teacher. And Dr. Mary Murray is a clinical psychologist. And on the line is Father Sean McDonough. Father Sean, you've travelled all over the world, I know. So you've lived in societies that are terribly poor. And obviously yeah. you're based here in Ireland now, where by any standards, it is a rich society. Though I know individual people are suffering terribly with the after effects of the recession. You know, what contrasts have you noted between how people can be happy if they're poor and unhappy when they seem to have all life's comforts? Well, I spent 15 years working with the Tiboli people up in the mountains of Mindanao. It was a very rich society, I must say. that It was a, it was a society that supported people. Uh, it had a lot of uh, really wonderful music and poetry. The one thing that I noticed there was they didn't have the expectations of the future of being kind of part of consumer society. Now, in, in actual fact, they, they were quite poor. That They had seen a lot of destruction taking place in their, in their landscape with the destruction of the tropical forests, which they weren't responsible for. But I just felt people were happy to be in the situation in which they were and spent a lot of time with each other, talking to each other, being present to each other in ways that we kind of find it sometimes difficult in the Western world where we're moving fairly fast from one thing to another and don't have the time and energy. And there were people that, in a sense, almost practiced the kind of thing uh, of meditation, of, of mindfulness and being aware of the world around them that I don't notice here in, in, in Ireland since I've come home. Yeah. And what about the role of religion? Now, I mean, look, we all know religion has played its part in the unhappiness of people. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, I think most people would say it is a comfort to people. Do you worry that the way our society is going, that people are losing a crutch? And as Mary was saying, sometimes we don't notice the good of what we have until it's gone. Do you think are people going to regret losing the church and losing God? Well, forget about the church, uh, but but losing that religious dimension of life. Uh, yeah, I, I feel religion, yes, very much so. But religion also needs to be critiqued. I mean, anything that's fundamentalist in religion that cuts one off from other people, defines me as against you. Well, that's the kind of religion I'd like to be the first to challenge. But the religion that I find in the gospel of Jesus and in the way he lived his life and the kind of values that he had and what he's held up to us and, and the comfort we can get for that, certainly I think that is very true. As it was before I actually worked among the Tiboli, I actually taught in a university in the Muslim area of the Philippines and was very much involved in Christian-Muslim dialogue. And again, I, I met many wonderful uh, Muslims who are very annoyed about the, the, the radicalization of their religion, particularly and the use of violence. 
I mean, on the great scheme of things, I think religion has brought a lot of happiness. But in the fun scheme of things, when religion is misused, even by religious people, it can do an awful lot of, of, of damage. I mean, I think this would be true of Ireland. We were, the church was in such a dominant position and was giving orders to people how to live their lives that when people saw the difficulties in the church with abuse over the last 10 or 20 years, that they have uh, taken a much more jaundiced view of the, of, the, of the leadership of the church and the way the church organizes itself. And I mean, myself, I'm a member of the Association of Catholic Priests. So, I mean, one of the things we're challenging people is that, that the religion that we believe in is a religion that promotes well-being uh, of humans, uh, our relationship with the divine, our relationship with others. I think you talked about caring, being uh, uh, understanding of others, uh, and ultimately the gift of forgiveness, which is, I, I think, any of us who have lived as long as I have lived know that can be one of the most difficult things in one's life. But if one doesn't do it, uh, one is in expenses by it, actually, yeah. Finally, we've been talking about the relationship between happiness, maybe in the definition of pleasure, and having a meaningful life. And that often meaning is brought about by doing things for other people, making them happy, caring for them. And it seems to me that the life of a priest is one where, and this might be stereotypical, so please correct me if it is, that it's not about individual happiness and doing what makes you happy, but your life is about your pastoral work and doing things for other people. Is that enough to make you individually happy serving others? Well, no, I mean, it, it, that's, that's a wonderful gift and vocation, yeah. But no, I think everyone has the need to be happy in themselves. I do a lot of work, as you probably know, also in the whole area of the environment. For me, a connectedness to place. Like if you ask me, where do I want to be in the first week of May each year? I want to be in the heart of the burn with the spring gentians in total blossom because I, I'm connected to a place that gives me extraordinary, extraordinary pleasure and meaning. I think if one is always giving, but not in a sense making sure that one's own life, there is joy and happiness and, and something like that to share, then it can be a great drag on people. And it's maybe people should be more aware of the emotional needs that priests have, or, or not just priests, but other religious leaders in the community. OK, Father Sean McDonough, many thanks for that and a happy new year to you. I, Pete Lone, one thing that seems to me that is important to happiness is what I think you guys describe as agency. And it's the idea of how much control you have over your life. Do you need to have a lot of control in order to be happy? That's a very good point. And it turns out to be true. Yeah. I'm great. Um, So, yeah, there is a link. There is a link. People find it really difficult to get on the end of things that they cannot control, that appear to just be bad luck, that appears to be hitting them where they feel that they can't control them. One thing that's very interesting, though, is that we also have what's called the illusion of control, which it's like we have an insulating system within us where we basically convince ourselves that we have more control than we actually do because it makes us feel better. Far be it for me to suggest that that's exactly what religion does. I need to be terribly careful. I'm you know, an atheist and a scientist. I'm one of those people and a very happy one at that, I might point out. Um, there is a link between religion and happiness in general, and agency may have something to do with that. It is true that, on average, it's a small effect, but it is true that, on average, people who have religious belief are happier than people who don't. Now, there's nothing in the data to suggest that religious belief makes you happier in the sense of causing it. It may actually simply be that people who are born temperamentally happier are more likely to adopt religious beliefs or they're less likely to question them and throw them off in their teenagers and so on. I mean, we don't know exactly what the link is, but it is true that on average 
people who have a degree of religious belief, particularly people who are spiritual, in fact. There's no particular kind of religion here. It's about having some feeling of connectedness there. Now, that may actually be to do with illusions of control. It may be that it's a comfort blanket psychologically that you can go back to that is always stable, that is always more certain. We don't know. And we also know that some of the belief systems of particular religions cause people unhappiness. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, it, you have the comfort blanket, you have the certainty, but what you also potentially have done is adopted a belief system that can bring unhappiness and do things like prevent you from exploring sexual fulfilment, you know, make you feel guilty about things that maybe you don't need to be feeling guilty about in the modern world. You know, there's all sorts of pluses and minuses there, so we really should think that that link is quite small. But, Mary, I've always thought religion, for most people, is really more a consolation, that they accept there are things they cannot change, that, you know, we weren't necessarily brought into this world to be happy, but there's a consolation there for you if you believe that there's something more than your own individual suffering. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting if you look at how psychological research and the percepts of religions coincide. We go back to, I go back to that five, you know, optimism. You believe that there is something greater looking after you. So therefore, it will be okay no matter what's happening. People say, I'll pray for you. I'll storm heaven for you. This allows someone to feel that something external to them may solve things for them. Altruism. That whole thing of certainly happiness is seriously connected to, and and Patrick was talking about this, this sense of of giving. And that again brings us outside of ourselves. Gratitude, and I know you were mentioning it, Pete, you know, and, and the hospice had that lovely thank you book where you tune in five times to five small things for which you're grateful each day. Forgiveness which he mentioned, and fulfilment. Mm. So I think it's interesting that the religion, there is no doubt, it, you know, it helps people before surgery. They recover more quickly after surgery. There's a sense of hope if they believe in it. Now, of course, there are all those, you know, negative pieces where institutions or interpretations have caused it to bring so much and deep in happiness. Park, one thing that occurred to me as well, you know, we've been talking really, I suppose, about consumerism and how that can make you unhappy. But I wonder, too, about the role of the concept of equality. You know, we're all supposed to be treated the same. And that may be accepting that, you know, if you're not the same and if you're treated a bit differently, that may not necessarily be the end of the world. So... I mean, just one small example, maybe this isn't a particularly good one, is, say, the religion in schools thing. And maybe if you're the atheist in the class, you feel a bit different. But if you've got a concept that everyone should be treated exactly the same and everyone should be the same, then that would affect you much more than taking an attitude, yeah, yeah I am different, I don't believe these other things, and I'm, I'm happy to be different. I think we are so connected in as social beings that it's really hard for us to take that attitude. Somebody once, I remember giving the example, a long time ago, he was talking about if you were walking across, say, O'Connell Bridge in Dublin and somebody was giving out free pencils. Uh, so people are getting this, each person is getting a free pencil. And then when you come up, they say, no, not you. Right. And they give it to the other people. This pencil doesn't matter anything, you know. But this is going to be on your mind for the rest of the day. You're going to get very vexed about it. <laughs> Something ab- about being separated out really, really gets to us. I think it's a very fundamental thing. The old philosophers used to argue about what's the fundamental human drive? Is it justice or is it belonging? I think possibly it's both. We've hit on both today. So I think that the feeling of equality is terribly important to us. 
you could bring it to ridiculous extents, I guess. Sometimes we do, while ignoring maybe sometimes real equality, because equality of opportunity is very important. Equality of, say, services, a good health service, for instance. You were sort of asking earlier if we took it that we don't have to be made happy all the time, would we become passive? Well, in fact, we might demand, say, a decent health service, for example. So we might say to our politicians, look, I don't need you to make me happy all the time, but I need that casualty department to be running really smoothly if I have to go into it or if somebody who matters to me has to go into it. But if a social norm is set, and it could be something that people or society doesn't have control over, like the whole redhead thing. One of my kids yeah. is, is ginger, and it's, so it's something that we joke about all the time. You know, is there a point where you say everybody cannot belong to the same club and not belonging is okay, or at least it's something that you cannot control. So, you know, just get on with it. Well, I think that it's accepting that that is so rather than than imposing it, rather than setting things up to create inequality. So I would be an introverted person usually. So therefore, there's a lot of clubs I wouldn't be in. But nobody is creating rules saying you can't be in that club. Right. That's the difference. Okay, you know? Pete, you I want really to get in really on that? I want to come in here because I think yeah. there's a vital distinction here. And the distinction is the distinction between equality and fairness. Political scientists have known for a very long time that there's a tension between equality and freedom. And you've been referring to that really. If you try to push everyone to be the same, it restricts people's freedoms and it might make people less happy. But it's perfectly possible for there to be a lot of diversity and a lot of freedoms without unfairness. So you haven't got equality of outcomes. You've not got everyone being pushed into the same thing. What you have is people who are diverse and different and therefore have freedoms managing to live together in a way that they all consider to be fair. And I think in many ways that's the challenge of a modern society and it's also the victory of democracy in the modern world that what we've managed to do is to develop systems where people who are very different, whether because they have red hair, whether because they have an alternative religion, whether because they like whatever pop music they like versus something, whatever it is that makes people diverse and different, we've managed to put in place systems that at least to a first approximation society thinks are fair for all of us to live together and be as different as we are. And I think the distinction there is between equality and fairness and going back to the happiness literature, what makes you so frustrated when you don't get the pencil isn't that you don't own a pencil and that they do it's that you've been discriminated against it's unfairness it's not equality right okay i have to take a quick break and when we come back we'll be talking about the happiness industry talking point on news talk 106 to 108 Now, earlier I spoke to Will Davies. He's a lecturer at Goldsmiths College in London and author of the book, The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Wellbeing. And I asked him, what's wrong with governments and corporations caring about our happiness? If there are forms of identifiable suffering in society or within businesses or any other types of organisations, then it makes sense that you find out what those are and you find out there are ways in which you can alleviate them. And that's just sort of common sense, really. You know, it's better that employers have some kind of sympathy for the feelings and lives of their employees than that they don't have that kind of sympathy. So I don't have any problem with a kind of common sense or ethical concern with other people's feelings or suffering. I'm not, I'm not um, a brute. But I think what has changed over the last 20 years or so is that a whole range of new sources of data and new forms of monitoring of the mind, the brain, the body, behavior have arisen. And combining those with new economic calculations about how our happiness contributes towards productivity and economic growth means that 
increasingly managers and policymakers are thinking, well, maybe what we have to do is somehow kind of actively promote greater optimism or positivity and so on, and then we're going to solve these particular problems. We're going to get people, for instance, in Britain, there's a, a lot of interest in positive psychology and positive thinking in the area of getting people into employment and off benefits. But one of the unfortunate consequences of this is that it's used in an increasingly bullying type fashion and, and manipulative fashion where people who have very good reasons why they can't just become independent, optimistic, healthy individuals due to factors often beyond their control, are told that they can achieve anything they want to if only they desire it enough. And that sort of thing is what concerns me. So your book is called The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Wellbeing. Can you talk to me a bit more then about that title and what you see as being wrong with selling us happiness? There's a long history here and the book covers a lot of the history because Modern psychology, as we understand it, arose in the late 19th century, and it wasn't long after the emergence of modern experimental psychology that businesses started trying to take lessons from what was being discovered. So the the earliest attempts to use psychological research techniques in the advertising industry arose around about the turn of the 20th century, and it it wasn't long after those techniques had been initially trialed within academic psychology. So there's a long-standing tradition of trying to draw on evidence and lessons and theories from psychology and apply them to the business world and in the pursuit of making money. And some of those are more manipulative than others. Obviously, I'm more critical of the more manipulative examples, and I think the public are increasingly concerned by the forms of manipulation that go on in in the digital economy, many of which, of course, we don't really ever know about. And this creates a sense of unease. But I mean, we did discover 18 months ago that Facebook had been manipulating people's news feeds to run experiments on how people's emotions influenced other people's emotions. This was a famous paper they published in a academic journal on what's called emotional contagion. They, um, for a few weeks, had been altering the news feeds of 700,000 people to see uh, if they could deliberately prompt people to change the types of emotions that they expressed on Facebook through the emotions that they were uh, encountering on Facebook. Facebook published the paper thinking that, you know, this would be seen as a, a great gift to learning. But of course, instead, there was an outcry that people felt they'd been manipulated and there'd been no informed consent by those who were being experimented on and so on. There's another company, and you mentioned it in an article in The Guardian early this year called Affectiva. And I actually saw this being demonstrated at the Web Summit this year. Mm. Will you describe to people what that can do? This is a a company that's been spun out of MIT, which develops algorithms such that computers can interpret the emotions on people's faces so that you can tell when someone's happy or, or sad and so on. This is something that can potentially be operated via a relatively simple camera, like a web camera on a, on a computer. Equally, it could be operated via a, a CCTV camera. And this is still at a relatively early stage of development. The company Affectiva is you know, now a, a commercial company. It's not just an academic research uh, institute. And they can provide analysis for market research purposes as to how someone is feeling as they're watching an advert or something like this. Now, as far as I know, this this sort of thing is generally done with informed participants who have given their consent to take part. But fundamentally, you know, if the forces out there, corporations and governments uh, want to make us happier and are using all this data um, to find out what's making us unhappy and might do things to make us happier, what's wrong with that? Well, I suppose, again, there's a, there's a spectrum here. If it's a question of trying to 
change people's environments in certain ways uh, in order to help them flourish, you know, whether that be changing the nature of you know, to educational institutions in order to uh, help children develop and flourish and so on and perhaps have more green spaces and have reducing the number of working hours that people have so they can spend more time with their family or, or whatever it might be. There are various ways in which you can influence people's happiness uh, in ways that actually is, is, is allowing them to live the kinds of lives that they want to live. Um, I don't have any objection to that. What I think is problematic is when companies increasingly are, are looking at the symptoms of happiness and unhappiness and targeting those. So the, effectively people's behavior and their mentality is being targeted to be changed. There was a leak from Pret-a-Manger cafe chain a couple of years ago of the rules that were provided to people working selling the coffees. And these rules included all this stuff about their informal, quite tacit forms of behavior that they had to, in terms of how much they had to smile, they were told they had to be constantly touching each other so as to kind of create a kind of air of um, joie de vivre. So it's about it being faked and contrived rather than being authentic and natural. I suppose that's right. And I suppose it's also that it's being done for basically for financial goals a lot of the time. And I think it can potentially be, be used in a way that is manipulative and has a slightly more threatening air to it in terms of what happens if you don't do this kind of thing. I mean, some forms of work are very, very stressful. And the way to make those forms of work happier is to reduce the causes of the stress. It's not to sort of give people more and more techniques and training in order to carry on going about with a smile on their face and and feeling relaxed when their environment and the source of their stress have have not been reduced in any way. And this is what's going on all over the public sector at the moment in the context of austerity. You know, you've got governments all over Europe saying we've got to maintain the same level of output in the public sector, but we're going to slash the funding by 20 or 30 percent. Now, something's got to give. So there's a terrible crisis of stress and anxiety in public sector schools and hospitals. And yet the solution that policymakers come up with is to try and introduce more mindfulness classes and this sort of thing so that people are able to manage the stress better. But I mean, at what point do we actually sort of ask ourselves some rather more difficult questions about where is all of this stress, anxiety and depression actually coming from in a political and cultural sense? And that's William Davies, author of The Happiness Industry, How Government and Corporations Sold Us Wellbeing. And I'm pointing here at Porrick O'More and it's you, it's you mindfulness guys. But I'm going to go to Pete Lund quickly first because it's you really. Uh, what William Davies is arguing is that in the name of achieving happiness, governments and corporations are using a mix of economic and psychological theories to nudge us, that's the, the term you guys like, unknowingly into certain behaviours, for example, contributing to pensions. And that's very, very different from going through an explicit democratic process and the deception starts with the neoliberal conspirators deciding what defines happiness. Defend thyself. Well, I'm more worried actually about the fact that we've had William Davis played in and he's not going to be here to defend himself when I say what I'm about to say. I (laughs) I mean, I thought there was precisely nothing in anything he said there that was anything to do with happiness, how it is measured and how happiness is used. All he was really talking about is that business and government sometimes behave irresponsibly with power. 
And of course, they do that with happiness research. They do that with all sorts of economic research. Sometimes they behave responsibly. Sometimes they behave irresponsibly. If you run experiments on people that cause them some degree of suffering and make them feel less happy without informed consent, you are misbehaving. But that has nothing to do with subjective well-being or happiness or the research. The idea there's some sort of conspiratorial industry out there that's trying to sort of dangle playthings in front of us so we don't notice that they're pickpocketing us is just a nonsense. It's the kind of stuff I used to be- believe as a left-wing teenager and then I grew up. As I said, he's not here to defend himself. What I would say, though, and I think is really important, because you mentioned the pensions thing, is this. That's a really, really interesting one, right? Because there's a big question there about how do you use the science responsibly? This is all about changing the auto-enrolment into pensions. It's all about whether the default is whether you do save for a pension or you don't, and it makes a huge difference. If you go into a company and you have to actively sign up for the pension, only about 30 or 40% of people do. If they sign you up and you have to actively opt out, it's more like 80%. And governments around the world now are trying to legislate to make people defaulted in. So they still have the choice to come out, but far more go in when they do. Now, there's a big argument there about whether that's a reasonable thing for them to do. Now, my own view is the primary reason they're doing that is actually because they're worried about well-being. They're worried about old people becoming poor, and they're worried about the demography suggesting that old people are going to become poor. So I think they're using the science reasonably and responsibly, provided they're transparent, provided they tell everybody what they're doing. They say, we've changed the default. It's up to you. You can opt out if you want to. Right, but you see, I don't want to go too far down this path, but I would argue that if they changed the product, because I think pensions are a terrible financial product, then more people would sign up to it. And that's what Davies is getting at. Instead of, uh, you know, nudging people into getting the pension, why don't they change what a pension is so that it's better for everybody? And that's where it's manipulative. You you have a point, but I think it cuts across the point I'm making. It is better that people save more for retirement. The fact that we do not regulate the financial services industry well enough so that they cream out too much in profits, salaries, and don't give us enough of our investments back is a different argument. Right. On the positive psychology thing, Mary, I might put that one to you. There's a monk called Matthew Ricard, who, according to MIT, is the happiest person in the world and he's big into the mindfulness and we'll get back to Porik and the mindfulness. Yeah, Porik the is grand. the expert on mindfulness. <laughs> I, I will uh, not... The point was he was at Davos. He was at the last economic forum teaching all the, the billionaires about mindfulness and that this is the fear that it's it's manipulation. We're being manipulated into certain things for political purposes. Now, am I reading far too much into it? And please tell me if you think I'm being silly about it. No, I, I think the issue, and it's been simmering here all the time, is the difference between kind of research, the outcomes of research, and the use or abuse of those outcomes. And if we look even at, at that clip from Will Davis, what's he talking about? You know, he's talking at some level, you could say, about the abuse of psychological research or information that we have, or in interpretation of it that takes one strand only and doesn't look at the other aspects. So I don't have any problem with anybody going into any context to remind people of what are the key issues in life. And I mean, I think, Patrick, and and we know the wonderful work you've done in this area and sensibly, not from some kind of crazy, you know, I will make you happy. And I think there is a place You know, if we're back to diversity, to accepting all perspectives, to true equality being, in fact, not discrimination, not inappropriate discrimination, then, yes, of course, bring consciousness into all places about what's real, what's important, what is actually what really motivates us and makes life good for us. And that is about fulfilment 
altruism. I cannot stress the altruism too much. And I think when that runs through governments where it's been done from the point of view of how can we make things better for people in a real way, then people will respond hugely. Well, Porik, we're coming to the end of the programme and January is looming down upon us. And I know I certainly view it like this monster, you know, that has to be battled to get through to the end of it. What advice would you give to people who are listening and who are dreading the next 29 days? Well, I think, first of all, you don't have to make the next 29 days wonderful because January is that kind of month and everybody seems to want money, you know, and there's very little money to give them. Uh, So I think, in general, it's looking to the things that do bring meaning into your life rather than the things that you've got to spend money on necessarily working out what they are and putting a focus on them. And that's often actually easier to do than some of the things that we often resolve to do at this time of year. I always say that you need to accept more about yourself than you need to change, usually. And uh, I think that's one way to look at it. You know, we've had the big splurge. We have bowed down before the gods of commerce. All the, un- all the opened presents are lying around, used or unused. But we can get into maybe living a bit according to our values, which doesn't always cost money. And maybe just thinking about that. You know, I think even just thinking about happiness is a thing we hardly ever do. And even just spending some time doing that as you um, avoid the ring on the door uh, would be a good thing. Very good. (laughs) And I I do have your list of 47 mindfulness practices nailed up in my kitchen and they are helpful. I'm just going to finish with something that Mary wrote. She said that existentialism may reassure us that it is okay sometimes to view our world as utterly absurd and to seek to redefine ourselves within it, to sometimes march to a different tune and to compose one's own melody in life. I hope that's some comfort to you. So Many thanks to my guests today, Mary Murray, Pora Kamoran and Pete Lunn. Thanks to the team, Leisha Nealon, Ronan Brannock and Tom McNeil who put the show together. Thank you for listening and have a very happy new year. Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.